next three weeks, uh, the elders have decided to uh, preach a, re a refresher set of sermons leading up to our AGM, which is happening on the 22nd of January. Um, and the series of, that we'll be looking at for the next three weeks is on elder-led congregationalism. Uh, we've already looked at that briefly last year, but we felt it was very important for us to relook this uh, because of the fact that we'll be voting on this in our AGM. Um, maybe you're a visitor and maybe you're asking the question, well, how does this relate to me? Or maybe you've been coming to New Life Church for a while and are not a, a member yet. Uh, well, first and foremost, uh, let me remind you of what Jesus says about his bride, the church, in Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 25 to verse 27, the scriptures tell us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is a very important subject, whether you remember or not. And remember, Paul describes the love of Christ, how he sacrificed himself for his church. Um, he did for her what she could not do for herself. Out of love, he sanctified the church to God's purposes. And the purpose is to set her aside so that she could live a life created for him. A life of purity, a life of, of holiness. Um, set apart, we are to be holy. So if you're a Christian this morning, remember it was out of love that He purified you. So He could put aside the sin that hinders us. Um, and instead He gave us His righteousness. And He did this by the word of His gospel. And through it all, He has a great and final purpose for us as believers. As believers. And this is how Christ loved the church. And if the church means so much to Christ, then surely it must be important to us, right? So whether you're a member of New Life Church or not, let me encourage you this morning to hear what the Scriptures have to say about this very important subject. Because this passage of Scripture is for everyone who calls themselves a believer in Jesus. So if you would turn with me please to Matthew chapter 16, we are going to expound verse 13 to verse 19 this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to verse 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon by Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Father, we pray to you today that you would please teach us. Lord, you indeed are worthy as we have sung. But Lord, we ask that we would respond to you as our worthy King in obedience, that we would not just be the hearers of your word. But Father, we would allow the Spirit to open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to what you have to teach us today. Lord, if this is a familiar passage for us, we pray that you would give us a fresh understanding. Lord, if it's a new passage for us that we haven't studied, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to see the truths that are here for us today, and that we would respond in a way that would honor you. So, Lord, we pray that you help us to see the seriousness of this subject, Lord, the church you loved for, that you gave yourself for, the church, Lord, that you sacrificed your son for. May we understand the, the brevity of this sacrifice, and that we would live for your bride the way you died for the Lord unashamed. So Lord, please we pray for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I hope that we can all say with Peter that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the, the living God. Jesus is also described in the Scriptures as the, the head of the church. This is not my church. This is not the elders' church. This is the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. And one way of acknowledging and preserving and honoring Jesus' unique and exclusive place as head of the church is that both the congregation as well as the elders know and respect the limits of their authority. Authority is first under Christ. He is the head of the church. And second, our submission is to each other in relation to each other. And of course, this is expressed in the way that we govern the local church. On the 22nd of January, the members of New Life Church are going to vote about changing our current form of church governance. New Life Church has always had a high view of Scripture, and we have allowed the Scriptures to conform us and our thinking to become more like Christ. And the elders are convinced by Scriptures that, that we can do better in the way and the form and the method of our church governance. We are convinced that our current form of church governance is, is not the most a biblically accurate approach that, that we could take. And for this reason, because we want to be more biblical, we believe that this change will honor the Lord and it will serve the church better as we serve each other better. So at the moment, we have what we call an elder-led church model. Um, and we want to change it to an elder-led congregational church model. So this change is, is not a huge change actually for us. In fact, by definition, New Life Church is mostly congregational already. And let me show you the, um, the definition. Here's the definition. 
elder-led congregationalism is that the entire church body has the final authority under God's word in matters of doctrine and discipline. And doctrine, by implication, is um, choosing leaders, and by discipline, what we mean by implication is choosing members. And I will flesh that out a bit this morning as we um, look at this. So in our current model, elders decide whom we receive into membership, um, which has led many members to think that, well, that's the elders' job, the elders will sort that out. Um, the elders are the spiritually mature ones. And of course, in some ways, this has produced a, a spiritual passivity um, right. <laughs> in our own congregation, isn't it? And rather than taking responsibility for that, the congregation has taken a back seat. And, and the structure of congregationalism really changes that. It calls the church members to be responsible for each other, including the new members who are, who are coming in. And of course, this does require, in turn, that we all grow in our spiritual maturity as we become more spiritual spiritually responsible. So at the moment, New Life Church currently places final authority in the hands of the congregation to vote on the following. Um, the members vote on, on elders, the election of elders. The members vote on the dismissal of elders. Um, the members also vote on a call for um, pastoral staff and the, the members also vote on the church budget, which we will be doing on the, the 22nd. The members also in, uh, vote on any expense that's not included in the budget in an excess of 100,000 dirham. And then we have to vote to change the constitution. And nothing wrong with those. But currently, some of the tweaks that we want to make is that the elders are holding the authority to add and remove members as well as to, to execute church discipline on unrepentant members. And we are proposing that, biblically, the congregation should have the, the final authority, the final say, not just the elders. So that's not a huge change. So we are going in the right direction. We just want to become more biblical in our model. And this morning I want to show you that Jesus gives the final authority for inclusion and exclusion into the church, the congregation, the covenant community. This is the whole congregation's responsibility, and I want to show you that from the scriptures this morning. Um, in fact, if, as we go through Acts, I want you to see the New Testament models this congregational model that we are proposing for our change in our constitution. This is really the prescriptive pattern for churches throughout the whole New Testament. But let's start in verse 13 this morning. Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And we see the response in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks the most crucial question for every person to answer in verse 15. But who do you say that I am? Of course, our eternal destiny hinges on the fact, on whether we get that answer right or wrong, isn't it? And Peter 
under the direct revelation from God the Father, he correctly proclaims the right answer when he says, Jesus, you are, in verse 16, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we know Jesus continues to say upon this foundation, the foundation of his proclamation, the foundation of the gospel, on this foundation, Jesus is going to build his church. Um, he's not going to build it upon a person. He's going to build it on this gospel proclamation. The foundation of the church was and still is being built upon the very gospel of Jesus Christ. That was first revealed to Peter and the apostles and now to us. But my first point this morning is in verse 17 to verse 19. That the church has the authority to proclaim and to defend this gospel. In verse 17, Jesus says to Peter, Jesus is answering Peter. He says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Look at verse 18 there. Verse 18 talks about the gates of hell. What, what are these gates of hell? Look at verse 19. What does Jesus mean by the keys of the kingdom? What does he mean by binding and loosing? These are very important questions that we need to answer. In fact, this is a controversial issue because of a wrong interpretation that has led many churches to believe something that this passage doesn't teach. When it comes to studying the Bible, we need to remember that there is only one correct biblical interpretation. We can't have our own personal, private interpretations of what the Bible is saying. The author has only had one purpose for writing. He has, the author wants his audience to know one specific teaching. There's only one interpretation. However, there are many applications that we can make. And we make applications all the time when we go through the passage of Scripture. When I expound it to you, when I explain it to you, I often give application for young people, for old people, for, for men, for women, for children. Application can be for anybody, but the interpretation, there can only be one exclusive interpretation. And there have been many wrong interpretations about this passage, as I've, mentioned, as I've mentioned in verse 19, there where it talks about the keys of the kingdom, where it talks about binding and loosing. One of the wrong interpretations that the Roman Catholic Church has taught over the years is that Peter here and his successors are now the popes of the church. And they talk about the popes and even the priests under them who now have the authority to forgive and not forgive people's sins. They believe that's what this passage teaches. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That is a wrong interpretation. Since only God can see what is in human hearts, no priest or no pope can know enough to pronounce authoritatively 
that someone is forgiven or not forgiven of their sins. Remember the scriptures tell us that there is only one mediator between God and man. And that mediator is the Pope, right? <laughs> Glad you're listening. No, it's not the Pope. That one person is Christ Jesus. Rather, Jesus means here that Peter, who is representing the apostles, he had the authority to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness of sins to all who repent and believe in Jesus. He had the authority to proclaim judgment to those who refuse the gospel. In fact, we see Peter doing this with the Jews on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which we've seen. We heard his sermon. We heard the gospel that he preached. And we heard the judgment that he pronounced to those who reject the gospel. We saw him in Acts chapter 8, preaching another message to the Samaritans. And with the, the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And we have the, the apostolic testimony to God's way of salvation in the New Testament. And as members of the church... Today, Christ has entrusted this very gospel to us. And he has entrusted to us the most important message that the world will ever hear. We all know John 3.16, I'm sure. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have eternal life. And those who do not believe are condemned, right? Matthew chapter 18, in verse 15 and 20, a similar passage to Matthew 16, but in a corporate setting. Now, Jesus is giving this authority, not just to Peter, an apostle, but he's giving the authority and the keys of the kingdom to the church. Look at Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Notice there in verse 18. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I hope you recognize those words from chapter 16. This is a familiar verse, familiar phrases. Because it's the same language that Jesus is using when talking to Peter. He's talking about the keys here. This time he's not talking just to Peter. Here... In verse 18, he is talking plural. He is talking to the whole church. Jesus is giving the keys of the kingdom to the gathered church. And here in the context of church discipline, 
it becomes clear that part of the authority of the keys is, of course, to discern, to judge the credibility of someone's profession of faith. And at the moment, that responsibility is upon the elders. When we have church members' interviews, which, if you remember, you've had an interview with the elders, we ask you a series of questions about your, your testimony of faith. We ask you when you were saved, when you were born again. We ask you what you believe about the gospel. We ask you what you believe about repentance. And we have to discern whether you are, there is a credible witness of salvation. So that responsibility at the moment is upon just the elders. But notice here in verse 18 that the responsibility is not just given to one person here. The responsibility is given to the church. The whole church. The congregation now has the authority to discern, to judge. The congregation has the responsibility to bring somebody into membership. And by implication, to remove somebody who is not willing to repent of their sins as a form of church discipline. Only God has the final authority to judge whether or not someone is, is truly a Christian. He alone knows our hearts better than we know ourselves. But please see here, Jesus has given the church the authority to judge whether or not an individual's faith is credible, or whether it's not credible. A professing Christian who continues in, in unrepentant sin... He's not acting, he's not behaving like a true believer would. And the church has a responsibility. The church cannot confirm the credibility of someone's professional faith if they're still living wickedly in sin. And we see examples of that, and we will see examples of that even next week in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when we look at that. The church has a responsibility to confront that sin. And we see in Matthew 18, the four steps that are mentioned there. Private rebuke. If they don't repent, bring two or three witnesses. If they don't repent after that, tell it to the church. And the fourth and last step, if they're still not repenting, then we are to remove them from the church. And this is for the sake of the purity of the bride of Christ. People sometimes, when they hear the word church discipline, they, they get their backs up against the wall because they don't like that word. They don't like the, the thought of, of discipline. But let me ask you, if your child is playing with a pair of scissors in the street, what would you do? Would you just let them play with that pair of scissors in the street and don't say anything about that or don't approach them or, or, or don't confront them? I mean, you love that child. You love that child, and because you care for that child, you will approach him. You will confront him. And that's what church discipline is about. It's not about revenge. Church discipline is about restoration. It's about loving that person enough in the church to confront them about the sin that is destroying their soul. It's about loving them enough to make sure that they don't continue down that path that will ruin their marriage, that will ruin their lives. 
God has given us that responsibility to protect the gospel, to love the gospel enough that we care for each other, that we love each other. Every member has a responsibility to encourage, to confront, and to admonish one another in love. So that we would endure faithfully to the very end. And that is what congregational government means. We read this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. We care for one another and we build one another up until we reach Christ-like maturity. We build each other up so that we're not tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine and believing crazy things. I don't know if you, if you saw, I think it was last year, there was some church preaching in, in Africa and teaching some strange doctrines to the point where they were spraying insecticide in people's mouths, thinking that that was spiritual. People died. People being tossed around by every crazy wind of doctrine. We need to protect each other, love each other, help each other grow up into Christ-like maturity. And it doesn't happen if we don't take our responsibility seriously. Every member is involved in the ministry of the church. It's not just the elders, it's not just the ministry leaders. Every member. And this is really the, the apex, the climax of our passage this morning. This is what we as elders are trying to show you from God's Word. This is why we are convinced we need to change this elder-led model to congregational elder-led church government. According to our, our constitution at the moment, it's the elders who add and who remove people to the church. But it shouldn't be like this. Jesus has given the authority of the keys to the church, the whole church. Local churches have this authority that Jesus exercised with Peter in, in chapter 16. Think of a courtroom judge. A judge doesn't make the law. The church doesn't make the law. Okay? What is a judge's job? The judge doesn't make the person innocent. He doesn't make the person guilty. What does he do? He interprets the law. And of course, he interprets the person. He looks at the credibility of the facts in front of him. He looks at the credibility of, of this uh, person's testimony, isn't it? And then he pronounces judgment on that person. He uses discernment. He uses the evidence in front of him. And then he takes the, the gavel and he pronounces guilty or not guilty, isn't it? And so it is with churches. If we use the authority, if we use the keys of the kingdom correctly, we don't make up the law, we interpret the law. We do it biblically. We don't make a person a Christian. Somebody coming to a church and becoming a member doesn't make them a Christian. <coughs> Rather, we listen to what that person is confessing and we consider their life, we consider their testimony, and then we pronounce them a member or not. 
The authority applies for bringing a person into membership, but also removing them from church membership as well. Let's look at my second point this morning, moving along in verse 18. The church belongs to Christ. The church belongs to Christ. See there in verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice there, whose church is this? Jesus is calling this my church. This means that the church doesn't belong to any pope or any bishop or any priest or any, or any pastor. Nobody can claim that the church belongs to them. It's Christ's church. We read about it in Acts chapter 20, how Christ shed His blood for the church. It belongs exclusively to Christ. No one, no matter how influential or how much money they give to the church or donate, or even if their ancestors have built bricks to, to build a building where the church can meet, they cannot proclaim that this is my church. Christ owns the church. He only allows us to serve in it for His kingdom purposes. And the authority, we're talking about authority here, but the authority that the church has is given authority by the one who owns the church. The authority the church has is given by Christ. The church belongs to Christ. We are stewards of the gospel. And we are stewards of these keys of the kingdom. Remember in the ancient world, especially in Jerusalem, where they had these city gates um, in the walls of these uh, big cities, this was the meeting place where the leaders did their official business. So this is like a, a figure of speech as well, of, of authority. And we will talk about Parliament today, or we will talk about, Americans will talk about the White House. But here, in the city gates, was where the authorities would meet. And I think what Jesus means is that all the powers of, of hell cannot stop his church from ultimately triumphing over the powers of darkness. The gates of hell will not prevail. The powers of darkness will not prevail over the church because it belongs to Christ. Because it is His. It is not mine. Because He is eternal. He is the uncreated one. And in spite of the church's many shortcomings, and despite the failures of the church, eventually the church will reign with Christ in all His glory. And evil rulers have tried to destroy the church through persecution. You know, atheistic communism tried to eradicate Christianity. Islam spread through North Africa, effectively wiping out the church for centuries. Hinduism dominates India. Buddhism prevails in Southeast Asia. But yet Jesus made a prophecy in Matthew 24, verse 14. And this is what he said. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, 
and then the end will come. The gospel will prevail. This present evil world will perish under God's judgment. And then we read in Revelation 11 verse 15, The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Christ promised to build His church, and His promise will not fail. And when we commit ourselves to His church, we are committed to the only cause in the whole world. They will not fail. They will triumph. I recently read of a predicted statistic in the U.S. that because of the coronavirus pandemic, 20% of churches across the U.S. would be forced to close at the end of 2021. I'm not sure how many did, but that was the predicted uh, statistic. So you may be asking now, well, then how does that match up with the promise that Christ made to build His church? The church Christ is talking about here is not the local church. He's talking about the universal church. He's talking about the invisible church, the true church. And all we need to do is look at history, at the many churches that we read about and study even in the book of Acts, that have closed down. You know, there was even some discussion at our elders' meetings at the possibility of New Life Church closing down and merging with ECC during this pandemic. Now, I don't know how long this coronavirus is still going to cause challenges for us as a church, but... I think the application for us is that if we don't take our responsibilities seriously as a church, there is always that, that threat of the church closing down, the local church closing down. If we are not willing to be involved, if we just want to treat the church as a, as a nominal club where we gather together, the church will not triumph if that is the case, the local church. I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. Because I'm probably preaching to the choir this morning. The people who aren't here should be hearing the message that I'm trying to preach this morning. I'm preaching to people who probably agree with me. To people who take their responsibility seriously. What I'm trying to say this morning is that God is sovereign. The church belongs to Him. And come what may, He is still in control of this universe. And while we are still alive, while we still have breath in our lungs. We need to do everything we can in order to please our Master. We need to remember, believer, that God is not dead. God is in full control of this pandemic and He's using this pandemic for His redemptive purposes. Maybe He's using this virus to, to purify His church. Maybe He's using this virus to help us understand what really is most important in this life. And in spite of the church's many short fallings and its many failings, we need to remember that the church will eventually reign with Christ. As we, as we read in Revelation chapter 11, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord. And He will reign forever and ever. And the church will reign with Him. Now William Carey, famous 
missionary to India, he once said, I'm not afraid of failure, I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter to Christ. Think about that for a moment. What matters to you the most in this life? What do you devote your life towards? What did you devote your time towards? What did you devote your resources towards? Well, hear what the Bible is saying this morning, folks. The church matters to Christ. The church is the center of God's eternal plan for this world. That is why we need to take responsibility for the local expression of His church. Here, New Life Church. We need to commit ourselves to the church to help it become all that God wants it to be for His glory and for our joy. Maybe you're not a member yet. Maybe you've been visiting for some time and you have not been convinced about church membership or you've had a bad experience at a church somewhere else or you're not convinced about taking your responsibilities seriously. Can I challenge you this morning? Shouldn't we be loving the church that Christ died for, warts and all, the church matters. The church represents Jesus here on the earth. Let's represent. Amen? Amen. Let's succeed at what matters to Christ. Maybe you've read the biography of C.T. Studd. Another famous missionary who used to play international cricket for England in the 19th century. He gave up his successful career. He gave up his celebrity status to become a missionary to plant churches. And he faithfully served his saviour in China, in India and Africa. But he's famous for saying this. And I want us to remember this throughout this week. He said, Only one life will soon be passed, but only what's done for Christ will last. Let's live for eternity, folks. Let's devote the best of our lives for what matters, for what will last, for what will not burn on the day of judgment. When Christ sees us, when we stand before Him, and we give an account, what will He say to us? You are to. Father, we do thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for helping us again spend more time looking at this passage, meditating on the truth from this scripture, Lord. And Father, we don't know what you have in store for us. We don't know what 2022 has in store for us this year as a church. But Father, our desire is to honor you and to glorify you. I pray that is everyone's desire here today. Lord, as we've seen, we can glorify you by taking our responsibilities seriously. By committing to the local church the very bride you gave your life for. By devoting our time. By devoting our energies. By coming alongside our brothers and sisters 
and ministering to them, encouraging them in the very gospel, Lord Jesus, that you have given us the responsibility for. Well, please, will we do the best that we can? Well, we don't know when you are returning. We don't know how long our days are. But teach us, Lord, please, to number our days. To take our responsibilities seriously this year. By being a church that honors you. By declaring Christ. Wherever we are. By taking the gospel seriously. By taking our responsibilities seriously. Father, please lead us and guide us as a church. In this next year. There are many areas where we fall short. But Lord, we want to be better, Lord. We want to honor you better and more perfectly. Because, Lord, at the end of the day, you are worthy. We've sang it, Lord. And we believe it, Lord. Help us to live it, please, Father, for your glory. Work in us an understanding, Lord, of this passage. So that we would be honoring you in our vote on the 22nd of December. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.